Welcome to Central Queensland Region's Leading and Learning Podcast. These are informal conversations between leaders about educational issues and initiatives. We share them to inspire and inform you so that you may have a greater influence through your instructional leadership. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land across central Queensland on which we play, learn and work. I respect and honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander educators listening. I recognise the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land and commit to building a brighter future together. Hi, I'm Trudy Graham, your host for the show. I'm an Assistant Regional Director in Central Queensland based in Rockhampton. And today I have Kelly Jefferson, our lead principal, joining me. This is going to be a hoot. So welcome to the podcast, Kelly. Thanks, Trude. It's a lifelong dream to have been on one of your podcasts. So I'm nearly at my two-year mark, so I'm thrilled to be here. Um, can I also say I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners as well, and I'm down here on Durumbal Country um, near the Keppel Coast here. Really looking forward to today's podcast. Yeah, we'll see how we go. Just a little side note, Kelly and I are recording this on the back end of the lead learning day and both of us have eaten far too many jelly beans, so it's going to be an interesting episode. Well, Ange Collins set us a pretty high standard when it came to uh, engagement and after following the boss last week, Trudy, I feel like I've got, not only have I got big shoes, but I've got pretty ones as well to fill. Yeah, yeah, it was a great episode. Let's start with the one word barometer and the conversation starter. Kelly, what has been the highlight of the start of the 2022 school year for you? So first of all, I think after all those jelly beans, I'd have to say that my one word barometer is hyperactive. And then in terms of the start of this new year, the highlight has been, and it's also a daunting piece, is to lead out this Every Students with Disability portfolio. And, I, you know, the boss has really certainly challenged us to, to put some connections together there. And we heard that in the Lead Learning Day as well. So this portfolio is important and it's certainly one that means a lot to me. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. And my one word is energised. Even after the Lead Learning Day and spending all that time on the screen, I'm. this is going to be great. I'm thinking, hang on to my hat. It's going to be a wild half an hour. And uh, what has been the highlight for the start of the 2022 school year has actually been getting out and being in classrooms and seeing the amazing work that our educators are doing. Um, the curriculum and the engagement and the young people and their learning has just been like really like the start of no other school year. So I think the kids just couldn't wait to come back to school and to re-engage in their learning. I think there are a few teachers who might have missed their little people too. I think sometimes these circumstances bring out the best and worst of people. And I think we've heard of, you know, a lot of things happening which are the best of people in our region. You know, I know it's tough in some places, but we certainly are hearing those great stories because kids are at the heart of what we do. Yeah, absolutely. So, Kelly, you mentioned the portfolio piece that you lead. It's also near and dear to your heart. So today we're talking inclusion but with a particular focus on students with disability. So lead us in. Where where are you going to take us today? (laughs) Oh, look, uh, I do hope to not only bring uh, some depth of knowledge, but also 
try and demystify a few uh, myths as well and debunk that, Trudy, because I think there are a couple of mental models around inclusion and disability, and sometimes they're used in an interchangeable way, whereas they're actually very different in their constructs. Inclusion is one of those things that's actually sitting around a culture for learning. And I'll share with you my famous quote at the end, but I really believe that inclusion is actually about how we make people feel. And I was talking to a young principal today in the Lead Learning Day, and when we talk about little people who might come up to the office at lunchtime because they tell you they've got a tummy ache, when actually it's anxiety around social exclusion, they don't turn up and knock on the um, door of the office and say, I'm sorry, I'm feeling very socially excluded today. Um, They say, I've got a tummy ache or I don't feel well. And so inclusion really is about not just who's in the room, but actually the access that we give. Sometimes it's jokes. And as adults, we do this all the time where we can make exclusionary jokes. And, you know, we think they're funny, but they have a bit of whiplash around them. And sarcasm is something that's really difficult and is quite hurtful. You know, inclusion is one of those philosophies that underpin how people think and how they lead and what they actually evolve in their school. Whereas our disability um, mental model really comes from that notion that um, there's something wrong with someone. And, you know, we talk about the social model of inclusion, but we also look at the medical model of disability. And a medical model of disability is really about someone being fixed. And I think one of the challenges there is, is we can't fix disability. You can't change someone's, just like you can't change someone's ethnic background, you can't change someone's disability. You can enable their disability. You can enable them to be, you know, having access not only to the building, but to the work and to the ways of working that are in your school. One of the things that inclusion and disability, even if they are used interchangeably, that there's some fixed mindset about the meaning more work. And I really worry about it being seen as more work. And um, for those people who are listening and know me really well, vegetables aren't necessarily my favourite thing. Um, (laughs) So it's a bit like when you serve up chicken on a plate and you've got chicken and you've got watery, dodgy pumpkin and you've got Brussels sprouts and all the things that you don't like sitting on the plate and your mum says you can't have dessert or pudding until you've eaten your vegetables. Whereas if you're my grandma, you shove all that stuff in the soup and you add in a packet of two-minute noodles and I'm still eating the same thing, it's still good for me. But I actually, you know, really think about disability and what we do to support disability and inclusion. It's actually about hiding the veggies in the soup. It's hiding the work in the things that we do every single day to make someone's life better, you know. And I know it's got to be healthy for me and I'll eat my vegetables, but I even try and hide them from myself these days. So I think the point you're making here, Kelly, is that inclusion's not an addition to the work, it is within the work. Yes. And and the adjustments, the reasonable adjustments, the, the ways in which we personalise learning. We hear a lot about workload saying teaching's a tough gig and we, we have all those little personalities to get to know. But at the end of the day, if we can engage those kids and we can show them that we care, the learning will come. And, you know, sometimes we actually make it harder for our teachers. We make it harder for ourselves. And I think that's what I'd love for people to get through today is it doesn't have to be as hard or as complex as we make it. And and sometimes we can really distill that down into what do we really need to have kids know and do. Yeah. Now, Kelly, we've got a four-year plan. Do you want to talk to us about the plan? Yeah, I, I think the plan um, that's come out from the centre last year is is a really um, visionary piece because it actually gives us a projection of four years. And with that means we don't have to do everything in one year. 
I think the maturity of this plan for us as a system has really started to outline what those core pieces of work are. There's no guessing. And I think we've had those measures. And I think if schools start to look at that four-year plan and align that when we look at our AIP structures or our strategic planning structures, what are some of those key pieces that are relevant to their work in the school? And what does that look like when we step it out? And I think sometimes we think we've got to jump that chasm all in one. And whereas actually we can take small steps and bite off bits that we can chew because people will often ask me, where do I start? Starting point is, well, what's the learning need? What do we actually need to know here? And I guess part of the the four-year plan is actually enabling us to look at how far we've come. And that's the bit that excites me about a four-year plan is imagine some of these things we wouldn't have thought of 10 years ago when, you know, we first started looking at disability again, because if you're a history buff, back in 2005, we were leading Australia then in terms of disability reform, disability in education. That's when the Disability Standards for Education evolved. And we had people like Sue Carrington and Roger Slee working for us in our department. Now they're world-leading academics who are working in this space too. So this is not a new history for us to be leading in. And the plan we're talking about, of course, is the Every Student with Disability Succeeding Plan. So tell me about how that's informing the work within our region. Part of the work that you would have heard from Kay today in the Leading Learning Day was around the three levers of inclusion. And I think this is a really good piece that actually shows the alignment between every student with disability, every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander student succeeding, and also our engagement and wellbeing piece. Now, I know Matt Newell's leading the engagement and wellbeing piece. It's actually embedded through parts of the every student with disability succeeding, and we know that that also comes with engagements. I love the interchangeable infinity symbol between these three, because really there are key things that if we get them right for these groups of kids, we're gonna get it right for every kid. And when I talk about getting it right, transitions and case management are the key pieces in those strategies that we as a region are going to do some heavy lifting in. In terms of the Every Student with Disability succeeding, there's some really key pieces in there for us this year, which is a focus on the national consistent collection of data becoming part of our actual funding model. And so this is going to have implications for every school. And it's also now moving things away from being one person in the school's responsibility because every teacher and every middle leader and every leader has a responsibility around the types of adjustments that we're making in a tailored and increasingly personalised way. But we're also here to do the support part. So we're going to walk beside principals. There's an NCCD group of people, which includes our PEOs, um, my principal advisor, inclusion in Lisa Wayman, Deb Green, and some other knowledgeable people who are going to support us in this space. And we're going to roll out a, a universal capability piece across the year. We know NCCD has been around for a while, but we're now about to turn the dial up. So buckle up and get ready um, in term two we're going to start rolling that out in a really systematic way across the regions. There'll be work that we've actually identified for different subgroups. So there'll be a piece around the leadership. What does that actually mean? What are the accountabilities? Because there's some really important accountabilities. When you press go on that button for evidence, you're going to want to be sure that you're actually endorsing the evidence of adjustment. The other piece there is this is not the hoses work anymore. This is everybody's work. You know, we would be seeing HODs being highly involved in knowing the types of adjustments in the before moderation space. So this is where the veggies in the soup come to play. We have to plan from the beginning in regards to our adjustments, because that's when we're, if we're looking at identifying barriers to learning, 
and identifying next steps in learning, it has to be in the before moderation space. I was just going to say there's principals that I work with that have absolutely recognised this work and the importance of their leadership and that it's not an add-on. It needs to be built in within the processes and the ebb and flow of the school year. So not not left till term three anymore. They actually well, want it from the get-go. Funny you should say that, Trudy, because the beautiful Deb Green has already said this NCCD is not a party in August. Yeah. It's actually an all, all through the year. So we're going to stage it out. We're going to put some timelines there to help people know because this will actually be an annual rhythm that people will start to get into. We know that we need to get the NCCD piece right around the collection of evidence, the planning for adjustments, but we need to make sure we get this right with our teachers. And again, it doesn't need to be anything different to what they're already doing, but if we do it in the right places and we do it in chunks along the way, we'll be able to get there together. And there's a lot of people in our region who are incredibly capable in this space who will be able to support as well. We've got some schools already doing some marvellous stuff. And so we're gonna highlight them through the case studies that we're already doing. And also we're seeing EIB reports highlighting best practice in this space as well. So, you know, there's a school down the road somewhere soon that's got places where you can actually get some support. The other piece that's gonna be part of this NCCD plan is around regional moderation of NCCD profiles. What does a supplementary profile for a young learner look like in Mackay compared to the North Burnet or in Emerald compared to Gladstone? In grade nine in one part of the world to grade seven in another part or in preps. The moderation piece is about building affirmation and efficacy for the fact that you're on the money. And we know that when we're on the money, we can actually take that back into our schools for moderation within the school. Interestingly, some people have already been part of moderation where we've actually done it between sectors as well. So the Catholic sector and independent sector, you know, there's already work that's been going on. It's just us turning that dial up and amping up the expectations around how we do it methodically. But let's not go over the top either. Great. Look forward to that work. Kelly, while we're talking about things that are coming this year, signposts for inclusion. Another sign of, I think, system maturity. We had the signposts um, come out with school A, B and C and they were linked closely to the National School Improvement Tool. And I think when we see signs of maturity as a system, it shows that we've taken time to loop back around and we've followed our very own strategic planning process, which means we monitor and assess all the way through. And we know now that we've actually grown as a system around some of that work. We've been able to be more specific and more aligned, I think, to the Every Student Succeeding strategy. So that's going to be coming out as a key piece later in the year. When I say that, probably around early semester two. Signposts is a reflection tool. It's not a destination. You don't get to school C and win a prize. One new family, one new kid, one new teacher or a whole new principal or leadership team may take some people back to school A. And we have to be really comfortable with the fact that it's an interchangeable sliding scale not a place where you go, I'm there, I'm done, give me a prize. It's actually about using it for a reflection. Yeah, and again, principals are asking for that, which is music to my ears. So I know that they will engage with the new tool when yep. it's available to us. You mentioned the EIB and they are a key partner with us in the region around some work and one of the key strategies that has been built into our plan around students with disabilities. So tell us about that work. So the inclusion self-assessment process, it, this is a classic piece of interregional collaboration as well. Our friends down in the southeast 
um, region in the Gold Coast had started working with EIB around inclusion self-assessment. So they were taking the self-assessment protocols from EIB and looking at it with a particular lens around inclusion. So last year, as part of our plan, we trained up 40 staff in our region. We looked to our principals who'd been part of the Masters in Education program. We looked at our Quelly-sponsored middle leaders who'd been down to doing inclusive middle leadership. And we had a large number of people from our regional team as well. And what this enabled us to do was, first of all, enable the team to access the peer review process, which has only ever been for principals. So Mark Honke and Diana Bolter came up and led us through that. And then we looked for some pilot schools and we ran two different schools, a large high school down in Gladstone. And and we really were grateful to Justin and his team at Tallulah State High School for, for actually being part of it. And then also we ran it from primary school in Rocky with Lyle Walker at Parkhurst. And both of those experiences were genuine pilots because we wanted to see how it would work. And we got some amazing um, results from that in terms of quality assured work, looking at things that we could identify within our region, because a lot of schools ask us for where's best practice. And so we wanted to highlight what that looks like. And and we follow the EIB process because it's actually very safe for principals and we hold true to that process. And when I say safe, meaning it's a known quantity, it's a known protocol, we follow exactly the same reporting processes, our reports actually get proofread by EIB. So there's that high level of fidelity to that process, which enables us to keep clear on what we're seeing as great practice. And I really want to thank those two principals and and their teams for having us in. It, It is a real privilege. We are still going to look at that. We just sort of pressed hold at the moment because people are in a little bit of a world of pain around some of the staffing and COVID and now's not the right time. But we are going to look at some expressions of interest and I'll probably run a bit of a session to see what people, if people are interested in it. So look out for that. It'll just be a FAQ. Um, come online if you're interested and we'll have a yarn. There's obviously a relationship with the ARD there for an endorsement in that process. And even then, we would ask people to really consider about where that, like you wouldn't do it in the same year that you're having already an EIB visit. It's a fairly resource intensive process too, Trudy. So on behalf of the region, anytime we do them, it's around wages, time investment, etc. Probably a lovely intended consequence was growing the appreciative inquiry skills of our regional team so that they have greater understanding. And we're going to do another training protocol again, um, hopefully at the end of this term, COVID willing, with regional team and a couple of um, school-based staff in that space. So the self-assessment process is really a, a very intensive piece. And I guess this is where I'd love to head into the next one, which is one of my most exciting projects, I think, in regards to universal support. So um you ready for us to go there? Yeah, go for it. So I guess this is one of the things, and, and I know, Trudy, um, we've both probably been fangirls here in regards to a leading inclusive action research project with Queensland University of Technology led by Professor Linda Graham. And I know when I went to uh, Trudy, and they're no relation, are, are they? But, you know, I had to say, Trudels, 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 just settle down. We'll get you a signed copy. And then we will start working with our principals. Now, I guess the key piece here is I want to start back at the inclusion scan and assess back in 2020 because this actually arose out of the voice of principals. 
I know when I did my travelling road show when Kim sent me off in a Leyland Brother RAV4 and we went around and I, I got to meet with many of the principals. In fact, 67% of the principals in our region participated in the scan and assess for principal voice. The big three things that principals told us were, that were challenges was changing staff mindset, building capability of their staff and the knowledge of inclusion. You know, I don't know who made the quote up, but when we know more, we feel more confident. The other piece that the data identified in that scan and assess was around the domain aid, around what are the effective pedagogies for differentiation. The other part was around what is differentiation and what it isn't, and then also that expert teaching team. So I guess back in 2020, we didn't know that the whole school approach to pedagogy was going to drop out of the sky, but here it is. The opportunity to create an action research project with QUT because what I wanted to have us consider is we talk about measures of impact all the time, but sometimes they're really subjective. And so as a system, we can we can get a little bit of system think where we're only looking inwardly. So I reckon that in CQ, by having some action research that actually validates how cool we are and how committed we are to this inclusion process is going to set us apart from every other region. I want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to support principals in this space. The Inclusive Action Research Project is actually going to involve principals only. It's free. It's universally available. It's not writing a thesis, but we're hopefully treating, hopefully, 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 we will get Linda Graham on for a podcast in the future so that she can actually um, have a yarn to our principals and start to really lay down the foundations here. And one of the key things I think that I really want to highlight from this is it's not actually a disability project. It's truly an inclusion project and it's about leading inclusively. And it's actually um, dual funded by the Every Student with Disability Work Package and also our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Succeeding Work Package. So, you know, it is around those two focus areas which are part of our, our key disaggregated data. But yeah, huge fangirl moment and such a great opportunity for principals to universally access from all sizes and all spaces. Yeah, and again, if I can just put the voice of principals in this space, and I know your um, scan and assess work in 2020 did that, and it was from that that creating some um, professional learning communities and used Linda's texts, Inclusive Education for the 21st Century, and all of the principals that have immersed themselves in that text have had significant learning and aha moments. And I think connecting with Linda and her work and the team will be hugely beneficial in terms of, as you identified in your scan, about building our leaders' capability to lead inclusively. So it's exciting work. And so, Trude, I'm going to ask you a question now. It's yeah, not how we work here. <laughs> hey, look, I'm here to disrupt the cognitions. So, Trudy, as an ARD team, are you committed to doing this leadership work alongside your principals in learning, knowing more about inclusion and disability yeah, and Indigenous that, education? Yeah, and I think that's probably evident in how I've already immersed myself as a co-learner in the space, you know, and learning alongside my principals. Uh, it was because I read the book and got halfway through and just decided that every principal needed to read it because there were things in there that just helped me connect. So, you know, that's particularly in the student with disability space. And I had some ahas around the NCCD work that we've already talked about, Kelly. But the other piece too, in terms of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander learners and the histories and cultures within the Australian curriculum, 
you know, and people have heard me talk about my experience with Walk On Country and being and spending time with Durumbal people um, late last year was a significant piece for me. And, I, you know, in the words of Beck Godfrey, who, who said her experience was life changing, I would say the same. It's It certainly has opened my eyes and um, I've taken some very definite actions as a result of that. It's interesting yeah. how many parallels there actually are between the Every Student with Disability and the Every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander strategy, but also their histories. You know, I could never say they were the same. Sany Willett said to me, same, same, but different. And, you know, we talk about the stolen generation. We also have the abandoned generation where young people with a disability were abandoned by families. Um, there's some real tragedies around things that we saw during World War II with the Holocaust and religious persecution, but also there were some travesties there around people with a disability. There is some very hurtful pasts in there for a lot of people. And I know that when we start to look at this work, there's actually so many parallels. And as I walk beside Kath Lawler in that space, I just keep drawing the parallels and going, yep, we can do this. And I guess that's leading into some big, hairy, audacious goals that I'd like to talk about for us as a region. You know, it's serious work. And I know that I can be incredibly frivolous and, and have some fun. But, you know, there's some really big pieces here that, you know, when I talk about big, hairy, audacious goals, I mean really putting it out there. And I think we've got to have the conversation about what is actually student voice, because I think there's a literal perception here of, you know, no five-year-old's going to tell me what to do about how I teach in my classroom, as opposed to a young person and having a curious conversation around, you know, how do you learn best? And, you know, getting to know that relationship with that young person. And I think we've got some battles there because I'm going to ask this question to, to our listeners today. What does a day in the life of a young person with a disability look like and feel like at your school? And it reminds me of the program that Ian Thorpe did where they actually had the body cameras that were worn by little kids in their backpacks at school and they were kids with a disability, they were all sorts of kids. And we actually got to see some of the tormenting, we got to see some of the really poor behaviours that some of these kids actually have to, um, and, and let me be really clear, not just by children. There are adults in this space and I know how um, provocative that was when Ian Thorpe's program went out around bullying and I question the same thing around disability because some of our kids can't verbalise that. I think there's a challenge there about when we see provocation, we see stealth-like bullying, we see stealth-like manipulation of a young person with a disability. It's really easy to push a kid's buttons and when we're really tired and we've had enough, even as adults we do that. And sometimes we really need to consider if I if I was that young person, what would it look like every day? How would I feel if I was that little person or big person? Because sometimes that's where our um, disengagement is happening. And when I took when I think back to the dragonflies video that we watched today with um, Kay, and it's not about an indigenousness that was there. It's actually about a hidden disability. We couldn't see. You can't see hearing impairment unless some kids got a hearing aid or a cochlear implant. We can see a physical disability, but you can't always see an intellectual disability. And there are so many young people with hidden disabilities and we make so many assumptions and that's that unconscious bias. And I get really caught up when people think that it's more work. This kid's more work. Well, I think it's worth it. I know when we're tired and it's hard and I've walked those shoes with, with principles, so I know it is hard. But sometimes that's going to be the hard work is the right work and it's not going to make you popular. That's my student voice driving change. Parent voice. Our parents of, of young people with a disability are tired. 
we've seen through COVID and through a range of other strategies where you might feel like the parents are treating you like respite, but actually you're a key partner in this. And, and our parents, you know, I know I've talked to people about the fact that during the Royal Commission, it takes parents sometimes on average seven schools, seven schools to be able to enrol their young person because they get very politely turned away in gatekeeping. You know, that how about you head down the road? Because I've heard that Trudy Graham runs a great school. You know, I'm sure they'll be able to do a great job for them because, you know, we just don't have the resources here for your young person. How do you measure that? And you can't because we don't collect system data on how many times the family's been rejected from enrolment. And they get tired of advocating because you're not the only person they have to advocate with at a school level. They're constantly advocating around services, supports, money. They lose their jobs, their marriages break down over disability. There's a range of different consequences in this space. And sometimes a suspension can tip a family right over the edge because it could mean the difference between having food on the table. And we need to consider some of those things. And I guess the third big hairy audacious goal I have is we have to have the conversation about how we talk about young people with a disability. And we have to be prepared to have that conversation around how we talk about them, about you know, that child, their label. We talk about people first language where that child has a name and that child belongs to a family and someone who cares about them. I think as principals, we actually have a lot of power and the power to restory a child. And when I talk about restory, we can change the narrative about that young person or we can inflame it. We can, as school leaders, choose to lead from the front and become that child's next advocate alongside their parent we have the power to move resources within our school. We have the power to change people's view of that child because we might speak up for that person. It doesn't have to be a big call out. It's, hey, come and sit down with me and let's have a yarn about Fred and have a think about what that looks like for that family and maybe fill in some gaps because that's that conversation we have as principals that actually opens the door to people's hearts. And when we actually get in the heart space and we know teachers, they front up every day because they care about kids and so do principals. And sometimes we just have to really anchor ourselves in the, what can we do for this one? And, you know, we do have the power to influence change on how they actually experience life at school and, you know, how we set up social connections. And I talked about that earlier about that little person who turns up at sick bay sick when really it's because they've been excluded from a play scenario and they don't have the social skills to get into a play scenario. But we also absolutely have the power over our own mindset as well. And I know it's hard to change other people's mindsets. It's even harder to change our own sometimes. You know, they're my big, hairy, audacious goals, I think, as a system leader and, you know, some challenges to go out there. And I hope that, you know, people might have a think about what those three might look like um, in their school with student voice and parent advocacy and the power we hold to restore a child and, and help them be a successful member in our school. Yeah, and they're great provocations, Kelly, as a, a an educational leader to really ponder around what is our part and how do we play it to make a difference for every kid, as we, we say, every student succeeding, and it's right there in the small actions that we take that can have a huge impact. I think our power as leaders is underestimated, like exactly how much power we have. And, you know, that, that piece around the restoring, it doesn't cost money. People often ask me about the fact that if we had more resources, would we do better? And I go, well, how much money will it take to change someone's mindset? 
you know, because we see teachers every day in this region and in, in our state who do an outstanding job for nothing different to their mindset and the, their will and skill to be able to have a go. And, you know, we can build people's capability, but can we change their mindset? And, and Kelly, I think you hit on it when you said about sometimes the hardest work is changing our own mindset and our own perceptions and being aware of those biases that we we all carry and that's probably where each and every one of us needs to start. Yeah and Trudy I think there's some things that we do too to ourselves you know we make up rules. I want to use this as an example. It's not working out in that classroom for that young person and it might just not be the right match with that teacher so we dig our heels in and go oh well we can't move class because I can't do that for everybody who comes in the door that has a complaint and I go yeah I get that but how long are you prepared for that teacher to, and that child to continue to fail in the relationship when it could be a simple decision that we'd make? Now, I'm not underestimating, you know, some people will find that a really challenging comment that I've just made. But, you know, is it fair to the teacher? Is it fair to the young person? And with the power of a quick switcheroo at a time that's agreeable or mutually agreeable, end of a term, end of a semester, that you can make that small change that makes a big difference. And you know what? You can then say to that parent, I'd love to do that. Let's have a chat about it. I think they're the, sometimes the little things who we make up our own rules as principles and, and sometimes we have to be prepared to break those rules. Before we wrap it up, Kelly, is there anything else you wanted to share in the space of the portfolio that you're leading? Yeah, absolutely, Trudy. I'm going to put it out there now that I have the best team to work with and, you know, they're really passionate advocates for our young people with a disability and they're even passionate advocates for every other kid too, you know, and I, I love the team that are there, their energy across the whole portfolio from our nursing team to our therapy team, our ASD team and also the PEOs and the group that work there. And I'm sorry if I've missed any of you in there, but the whole team and, and I really think that there's a big power movement there in regards to their knowledge and I'd hope that principals are, are seeing the value in that regional team and how they can walk beside and support. My question to principals are is that how do we build the capability on a gradual release? They can't fix it because sustainable leadership comes from you as the principal, but that regional team have a wealth of knowledge there. So yeah, I do want to leave with that bit and we'll walk beside every school throughout this next four years, you know, to see out this work in CQ. Right. Well, thanks, Kelly, for sharing your passion and the provocations around inclusion and students with disability. Now, I know you listen to the podcast, and so you know we do the fast five that aren't so fast. So are you ready to play? Oh, I am. Roll that dice, Trudy. Roll that okay. dice. Well, people wouldn't know this, but I actually never read the answers to these in the notes. So this is, I hear them for the first time, like, everyone else is. So Kelly, when and where was your first teaching appointment? So my first year of teaching was at Eaton's Hill State School in Greenleafy, Brisbane. However, um, I met the most miraculous lady there who changed my entire teaching career and trajectory. She was actually a lady called Helen Henrich and she actually came down from Rockhampton. She was a long-term Rocky born and bred teacher and she'd worked at Glenmore State School with Gordon Croswell um, during that time. And she had teaching partners of Lisa Neaton and Lyle Walker at that stage. And we taught a multi-age class of year three, four, five, and we had 62 kids between us. 
So they were jammed in like sardines, but I have to tell you that's where I um, found my passion for multi-age education and, you know, that determination that age isn't a factor that says what we can or can't do. Um, but she's also my link back to CQ. Um, yeah, best teaching mentor ever. We had so much fun. And if I told you the mischief that we used to get up to, but my favourite part was one day I used to pick her up on the way to school and she still had her slippers on. So I let her drive all the way to school and then she realised she still had her slippers on, but it was funny. Kids loved it. She wore her slippers all day and she didn't mind. Wow. And on that note, when you think about your work, what was the last thing that made you smile? Oh, the mischief I get up to in our um, ELT team, I try to, you know, make sure we have a bit of fun and don't get too serious as well. So this week I know um, our ARDs have been mainlining on um, jelly bellies that are a bit disformed, so they're called belly flops. Um, so I hope the ARD team have enjoyed their belly flops, but um, I think sometimes we can never get too serious there. So a bit of mischief in our region is always a bit of fun. Yeah, and if people listening in right now are wondering what is she talking about, belly flops, I'll find a link and pop it in the show notes. And if you haven't had them, you're missing out. Kelly, what's your best book or film recommendation? Oh, look, this is a corker, and people just think I'm weird now. But there's four books that I have that are actually my favourite ones from a professional point of view. So I'm going to leave them in there um, for you, True, to put together there. But I, I do want to give them a quick shout-out. Um, and I have no royalties or... Um, connections in shares in these companies just in case I've done my management foundations for the year. So the first one is a must. It sleeps beside me in the bed, which is the Inclusive Education for the 21st Century, edited by Linda Graham. One of our beginning teacher texts that we send out is called From Text Maps to Memory Caps. I think sometimes when we're working with beginning teachers or even other teachers, ways in which we can give them quick tips and, and strategies around differentiating instruction from P to 12 is that book. So every BT who comes to our BT conferences in the CLAW and TLC get a copy of that, just a, a plug for that, which will happen in term two. The other one is um, Growing Up Disabled in Australia by Carly Finlay, and it's a great one. Those of you who've had access to that one, you can also get it as an audio book. Um, one of my favourite by Julie Corston is actually, it's new. It's come out after some COVID research and it's actually called Reimagining Special Education. If you're in a school where you're having trouble with some old mindsets around what is what the old special education model, this is a great one for you because it starts to put some frameworks around building equity and support for all students. So it's a nice, easy read as well. But on a personal note, this is the quirky part. I'm an autobiography biography fan and I love just reading about people and, and finding out stuff from the past as well. So John Monash's biography is actually pretty awesome. It was written by Peter Fitzsimmons, um, rugby union guy. He's more than just on the $100 note tree. Did you know that he actually patented reinforced concrete? I didn't know that. <laughs> so put that into your trivia for trivia nights. And he actually faced incredible scrutiny of his leadership during his military career because the irony was is that he came from a German-Jewish background and obviously during World War One that wasn't an issue until World War Two. And I think the thing that I really um, took out of his autobiography was the fact that he actually had a coordinated use of infantry, aircraft, artillery and tanks so it sort of sounds like a multidisciplinary team to me when you bring in the best of all that you've got to be able to make advances for. And, you know, most people who are history buffs will know that he had the least attrition rate of troops in World War One. When we have a multidisciplinary team, we can actually do great things. Yeah, wow. And uh, 
I understand now um, why Peter Fitzsimons would have written that book. That sounds right up his alley, and I do love him. He's a great author. So thanks for the recommendations, plural, five <laughs> great books. Absolutely. So, so, Kelly, you mentioned your quote earlier. We didn't hear it, though. So what's your favourite quote? It's actually one truth I wrote myself, and I've been saying it for quite some time, which is around the fact that inclusion is not a destination, a project or a program. Inclusion is a way of being, a way of thinking and a way of leading. Yeah, it's a great one. And I have heard you say that in many places now, and it's one that we always need to hear and be reminded of. Okay, this is going to be interesting. As far as things to see in CQ, what's our best kept secret, Kelly? Avazillo avocados. What? Avazilla avocados. Tell us more. They're the size of an AFL football and they're grown down here on the Keppel Coast. So literally, they are the size of a mini AFL football and they are the best bargain for money at the European markets down at the showgrounds. They sell a whole lot of other vegetable things that I don't necessarily need, but these avocados are the bomb. And you know what? You can get like a weekend's worth of guacamole out of one avocado and they only charge you five bucks. So... Seriously, if you haven't had a Keppel Coast Avazilla avocado, then you are missing out. It's the best I could find. Well, there you go. The podcast episode where we've covered everything from belly flop, jelly beans to avocados. Only with you, Kelly Jefferson, only with you. My that dream brings- is fulfilled, Trudy. My dream is fulfilled. You may never have me back and, you know, have I met the benchmark of Ange Collins? Probably just under, I think, because she just has, like, wit like there's no tomorrow. So, anyway. I'm still trying to work out how she managed to weave Donald Trump into the episode. But, anyway, let's. that was back in 2020 and we'll leave it there. Okay. Kel, thanks so much for playing the Fast Five. Didn't know what I was going to get in there. And thank you for taking the time to um, talk and share with us around your big audacious goals. Love them. They're hairy goals, Trudy. They're hairy goals. They're not just big audacious ones. They've got hair on them. They're that big. I'm recording this again. Thanks, Kelly, for playing the Fast Five. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me and share your big, hairy, audacious goals and to talk to us about inclusion and every student with disability succeeding. If you have suggestions or recommendations for future episodes, or you'd like to give us the gift of feedback, you can email us at cqcommunications at qed.qld.gov.au. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe in your favourite podcast app. You'll find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and Deezer. Do you know of an educational leader in central Queensland who may also enjoy listening to the conversations? Please help us spread the word by telling them about the podcast or forwarding the email that comes each fortnight with the show notes. Thanks, Kelly. It's been a hoot. Thank you for listening to Central Queensland Region's Reading and Learning Podcast. We trust this conversation has given you the information and inspiration to lead so that every student in our region succeeds.